0: Welcome to Behind the Knife's AppSite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated AppSite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day, and dominate the site. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligasure Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the Tac motorized fixation device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Decision curved jaw cordless ultrasonic device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife's Absite Review. This is Trauma Part Two, and now we're gonna dive a little bit more in detail into specific organ injuries. And we're gonna start with gastric injuries. So John, can you walk me through some principles of, of gastric injury? So what kind of patients are at high risk for this? How, what are some pearls for exploring these injuries? And how do you, you manage these and classify them and plan your repair? So the goal for these
1: specific organ injuries is to go through the very high yield questions that you might see on the test so gastric injury is often associated with thoracodomal penetrating injury when you think of a thoracodomal penetrating injury going from one cavity to the other you must consider a diaphragm injury anytime you see a diaphragm injury you have to have a high suspicion for a gastric injury another big pearl is if you have an anterior penetrating gastric injury you also must evaluate the posterior surface, posterior surface for an injury. And this can be done by opening the lesser sac. If a posterior gastric wall injury is identified, the pancreas then must be examined for another additional associated injury. There's a double injury scale chart that's posted in our book, and I recommend reviewing this. There's not a lot of questions that specifically come from a chart like this, but in general, it's good to know how these are classified. So Jason, if we have a gastric injury, how do we typically approach them?
0: Yeah, so unfortunately the stomach is a pretty hardy organ and it has a good blood supply from various sources. So it's pretty resilient to injury. So you can often repair injuries primarily or with a wedge resection if you can get away with it. Now, injuries that involve the antrum, the pylorus, or the proximal duodenum may require a distal or subtotal gastrectomy with with some form of a a reconstruction. Where's the highest place that we often miss gastric injuries in penetrating trauma? So, uh, it's easy to miss a proximal injury. You can fold the stomach over on itself, occlude an injury. So, I think going back to your point, if you see one hole in the stomach, you have to have a really high suspicion that there's another hole somewhere. And you need to look everywhere to try and find it, which means mobilization, maybe you have to take down some of the short gastrics in order to see that proximal injury folded over itself. And don't forget to use things like an NG tube or a leak test or an EG, uh, EGD to look for a missed injury.
1: Yeah, I've also seen them near the GE junction. Yeah, the proximal stomach, obviously. And a lot of times they'll be associated with diaphragm injuries as well. So if you have a diaphragm injury near
0: Especially the hiatus, you also need to be concerned about GE junction. Let's travel downstream a little bit now, past the stomach, and and look at the duodenum. Duodenal injuries are very challenging. So, what kind of advice can you give as far as finding these duodenal and dealing with these duodenal injuries?
1: Yeah, as we'll dive into it, there's a kind of a, a spectrum of duodenal injuries that you know have happen in both blunt and, and and penetrating trauma. The basis are, is if ever a duodenal injury on a CT scan that you're worried about you know, a laceration or, you know, some type of injury to the duo, the best way to do it is take the patient and at least explore them in the operating room. And the best approach to this is using a coca maneuver. You also consider the use of an EGD once you pass the pass deployors.
0: Now, it's like the gastric injury, you know, there's a WSD injury scale. I don't think that's as useful for the outside. It is useful in practice, but we'll put a reference to that in the companion book. John, what about hematomas, duodenal hematomas? This is something that we can see sometimes in children, sometimes after blood trauma. Uh, What's some management principles for duodenal hematomas?
1: Yeah, so most of these duodenal hematomas will resolve without intervention. They can just be watched, observation, repeat, imaging studies. If a gastric outlet obstruction is present, which they will not usually develop until after 24 hours, you can try decompressing the NG tube for five to seven days, and then usually at that point, you need to start talking about TPN, and then repeat oral contrast studies to see how the contrast passed the hematoma. Okay, now
0: let's, let's talk a little bit more specifically about duodenal injuries. You have the patient open, you've done your coker, it's in your hands, and, and you have an injury. What are some general guiding principles to dealing with those injuries and repair?
1: Yeah, it's a stepwise approach to duodenum. So you first need to expose the, the duodenum and get a good look of all the critical structures. Those critical structures are specifically the common bile duct and the ampulla and whether they're involved. The best way to evaluate them, as I previously mentioned, is with an extended Coker maneuver. So you want to do a full Coker and evaluate the entirety of the duodenum. Uh, if you can't identify the ampulla, uh, while you're there, you can pass a catheter through the cystic duct into the duodenum and help locate it. To increase the exposure of the third and fourth par- portions of the duodenum, you can do a right to the left medial visceral rotation and also release the legament So Jason, how do we repair the duodenum when we're in the operating room?
0: Yeah, so that can be really challenging. There's a, a number of described approaches. I think the basic principle is you need to sh- be sure that you debride any non-viable tissue, and then you kind of see what you're left with. If you're able to perform a two-layer primary closure, that's preferred. Of course, leave a drain. Other options include an end-to-end duodenostomy, which is technically very challenging because it's difficult to, to mobilize that duodenum. There are duodenal j with Ruin Y reconstruction that can be used for larger defects in which, you know, primary repair is not feasible. Again, very technically challenging. And so it gives you, a, you know, two high-risk anastomosis. And this all the way up to even, you know, a staged pancreatic duodenectomy or a, a Whipple procedure, which if you're doing, a, you know, a whipple and trauma, it's, a, it's a very technically challenging and a, a high risk with high morbidity, high mortality. And the key there is you want to stage it. You want to damage control that patient, resuscitate them, and then come back with somebody, you know, your most experienced epatobiliary surgeon to tackle that.
1: Yeah, you know, what you often see, I mean, I've never seen an ab site question or a practice question even that Whipple was the correct answer uh, on the ab site. Uh, Clinically, how this is usually employed is that you have a gunshot wound or a stab injury to the surgical sole, these, these injuries are never single injuries. Uh, so you have a, a multiple different surrounding structures that are injured. Uh, and what will happen is that you control the bleeding, you control the contamination as best you can with wide drainage, and then you do your operative planning after the patient is stable and getting resuscitated.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I've never seen uh, trauma whipple be the answer on an absite. I don't think it ever will be the answer. Just know that you know, in, in reality, if you're damage controlled, sometimes they, they, they will need that, but that's not going to be the answer on the upside. Now, John, what about the, some of the, the adjuncts? So sometimes we'll hear about things like pyloric exclusion, we'll hear about you know, duodenal decompression, you know, where's placing drains via, via a duodenostomy or jagenostomy, you know, duodenal diverticulization. What are these things and what should we, how should we handle these on the upside?
1: Yeah, I, I personally feel like it's not fair to, to test these types of questions because every single injury to the, the, this area of the, the body it is, is different. You never see the same injury over and over again. It's not even similar to ulcer disease where you have like a standardized approach to them. So those, these are all options of how you can approach and they can be debated to the time's end. But just know that these are all options that are available.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, very unlikely that these are going to be the answers on the app site. They're bailout procedures that aren't that well supported with the evidence, so not likely to find their way on the test. But what is, is is just be sure that you leave an NG tube in the stomach and pass it feeding tube, pass the repairs at the time of surgery, and be thinking about that enteral access in these critically ill patients. Yeah. Now let's move on uh, from the duodenum, keep moving downstream to the small bowel injuries. Uh, When we talk about bowel injuries, we often talk about them being destructive versus non-destructive. What do we mean by that and how does that affect what we're gonna do?
1: Yeah, this is a good way uh, to break down these injuries into some sort of algorithm, right? So we talk about destructive injuries being greater than 50% of the circumference of the bowel wall that's involved or devascularization such as a bucket handle of that bowel non-destructive we usually classify as less, to, less than 50% of the circumference and no vascular compromise the way we use this clinically is that we can usually repair non-destructive injuries primarily just using you know suture repair destructive injuries will you typically need some sort of resection and anastomosis or if the patient is unstable or you're planning for a temporary abdominal closure
0: just do a resection and leave in discontinuity now, what about dealing with this, injuries to the small bowel mesentery? They either, like you mentioned, a bucket handle or even a penetrating, you have penetrating injuries to the mesentery. How can you approach that and what do you have to worry about and, and how can you evaluate the bowel?
1: Yeah, like large uh, mesentery hematomas or, you know, active bleeding within the mesentery, after you've controlled that bleeding and determined the source, you ne- always need to inspect the bowel to ensure viability. If there's a large bucket handle injury, such as the bowel the bowel being torn away from the mesentery, it's rare unless it's very small that you can leave that
0: bowel and feel good at the end of that surgery. Okay, so moving on to colon and rectal injuries. So um, let's let's first tackle penetrating colon injuries. So with these, we have the same classification of destructive and non-destructive. So non-destructive being less than fifty percent of the lumen circumference, and destructive being over fifty percent, and that is a decision point for us, deciding between primary repair or the need for a resection in, in anastomosis. But what else do we have to consider with colon?
1: We approach the colonic injuries very similar to the, to small bowel injuries. Some specific considerations are the colonic anastomosis are at higher risk. It's perfectly safe on the ab site to say, if a patient is, is sick, so they have hemoic instability, they have significant blood loss, so they have multiple concurrent injuries, such as associated vascular injury, that you're going to perform a damage control surgery. And other options would be resection and colostomy for these patients as well, or you can perform
0: an anastomosis. And what about left-sided injuries? Now, I, I remember always hearing that you know, a left-sided injury, you have to do a, a colostomy.
1: Yeah, that's kind of an old-school way of thinking about this when that is no longer it's been proven that you can perform a left-sided anastomosis and that is very safe for the patient even you don't need to include like a proximal diversion
0: so i guess what you're saying is less so like i said the old adage used to be you know right sided injuries you can do a primary anastomosis left side to do an end colostomy or at the you know very least a proximal diversion but that's no longer the case and it's more just kind of based on the patient's you know physiologic status yeah but in general especially in test-taking, you should err on the side of more conservative. And if there's a question, there's nothing wrong with a a diversion.
1: Yeah, I really hope they wouldn't put both those options on there for you, but it's always possible.
0: Okay. We talked briefly about devascularization injuries or these bucket handle injuries. Can you talk to me a little bit about bucket handle injuries with the colon? What's the mechanism uh, of these and where are they more likely to occur? Yeah. If you happen to see a bucket handle injury of the colon,
1: you have to assume there was a significant amount of force that caused that to happen. The most common site for this to happen is near the sigmoid colon being torn off the abdominal wall. Additionally, you can see it on the sequel side as well. It's like really where you have any thick attachments to the abdominal wall and it can be torn. If that happens and you have a bucket handle injury of colon it's always recommended to resect it, anastomosis, or do a damage control surgery.
0: Okay, great. Um, let's move on to rectal injuries. Rectal injuries are very challenging. I've always struggled with these. So what kind of patients do you suspect? You know, what kind of mechanism and what kind of things do you see on a physical exam that would suspect you of having a patient with a rectal injury? And how do you approach these patients?
1: Yeah, as part of your initial evaluation, so your, prox- uh, your primary and secondary surveys, you should be examining the rectum. For any blood or any concern for bleeding, additional things that would raise suspicion for that area is any penetrating pelvic trauma, any penetrating trauma to the perineum, pelvic fractures, or other injuries within the pelvis should also make your concern for rectal injury higher.
0: Now, is there any utility to any like rectal contrasted scans, or is that all institution specific? Or
1: yeah, you'll still see the, the some of the colonic or sort of the rectal contrast being used, but typically the best way to evaluate these is with proctoscopy or sigmoidoscopy in the operating room. Okay.
0: Let's say that you have a patient that had a, a, a positive fast and was unstable and they had a, you know, penetrating pelvic injury and you took them to the OR. What do you have to remember about these, you know, specifically rectal injuries or those extraperitoneal rectal injuries?
1: Yeah, you're not going to be able to see the extraperitoneal injuries through an exploratory laparotomy, and they may only be able to be visualized on proctoscopy. You know, it may not be a question on the ab site, but it's something you may consider if you're taking a patient to the operating room with has penetrating or blunt uh, pelvic trauma, placing them in lithotomy
0: prior to the operation, so it makes that scope easier to do. Great. Okay. So, okay, let's say we're in the OR and we've done our abdominal portion of our procedure. We suspect a rectal injury. And so you know, you, you asked me to come in, and I look from below with a, a rigid procto and, and lo and behold, yeah, we do have an extra peritoneal rectal injury. How should we manage that?
1: There are a few... Different ways you can manage this. The safe answer for the obsite is fecal diversion from usually a sigmoid loop colostomy. The traditional rectal irrigation and presacral drainage are no longer appropriate to the higher risk of infections.
0: Yeah, I think I remember all those Ds from back when I was in training, distal washout, diversion, drainage. So what you're saying is really the most important part is that diversion. Diversion, yeah. I would say that's a good safe answer on the app side. Okay. So let's get out of the rectum and let's move into pancreatic injuries. So blood injury mechanisms to the pancreas. What what type of mechanisms should raise our suspicion that we may have a pancreatic and or duodenal injury?
1: Yeah. So these go hand in hand. If you suspect, uh, suspect one, you must also consider the other. The traditional questions you may see and also in real life are, Handlebar injuries. So a kid riding a bike goes over the handlebars. Seatbelt injuries coming across no, not necessarily associated with
0: seatbelt signs or a steering wheel hitting the patient in the abdomen. Like the rest of these injuries, there's a double AST injury scale that we'll reference to in the in the companion. Probably, you know, not super high yield to memorize that for for the abside, but certainly Something to be aware of and can help guide management. But with regard to management, what, you know, what are the, the the key factors and what do we want to kind of be looking for on our imaging and, and associ- or assessing when it comes to pancreatic blunt injuries?
1: Yeah, the one thing that comes up a lot is that if you have a patient that, you know, had significant abdominal trauma, maybe admitted for, you know, solid organ injury or some other source, spleen or liver and you also have persistently elevated or increased levels of amylase and lipase after the trauma, you must have that much prompt you to do an evaluation for a pancreatic injury. The management of this, if you're in the operating room, the key factors are whether you have involvement of the pancreatic duct, and is there an associ- associated duodenal injury? So Jason, the management of pancreatic injuries is kind of broken down to where it's out of the pancreas. How do we approach a
0: patient you know, has a significant injury to the head of the pancreas. I want to say it was Ken Maddox that, that once said, you know, treat the pancreas like a crawfish. You, you suck on the head and you throw away the rest. So if we're dealing with a main you know, pancreatic duct injury that's the head of the pancreas, I'm going to manage that with wide local drainage, and that might be a damage control type procedure. If it's a distal injury, I would manage that with a distal pancreatectomy. Oftentimes that's going to involve a splenectomy in the trauma situation, Although, you know, in children, if they're hemodynamically stable, or certainly anybody who's hemodynamically stable, I would make some effort to, to preserve the spleen.
1: Yeah, the one caveat to that is that if you have a, you know, pancreatic hematoma that you happen to find when you open the lesser sac, that's not necessarily an indication to remove the pancreas, but you can just place strains back there and observe them if you don't, if you don't feel that there's a ductal injury. All right, moving on to splenic injuries in the spleen. So Jason,
0: what's the general approach to management of splenic injuries? Yeah, so the, the majority of splenic injuries can actually be managed non-operatively without surgery, especially if we're talking about blood trauma, MBCs and the like. The key is to you know place the patient in a, a monitored bed and the management for non-operative or non-interventional management should definitely be protocolized and include things like serial hemat- uh, hematocrits abdominal exams, monitoring very closely for hemodynamic stability. Now, in our initial imaging, uh, if we see things like a blush on that CT scan, well, well, that's where we may want to involve our interventional radiology colleagues for uh, angioembolization. And then also for high-grade injuries, we'll want to consider, in some type of interval ct scan to watch for the development of pseudoaneurysms or delayed hemorrhage but if you really initially the most important thing is is watching for that hemodynamic instability
1: yeah and the one thing that catches for the questions on the app site regarding spleen so if you have an unstable patient when they walk in the door no matter what the grade of the spleen is you need to consider considering the operating room and don't ever take an unstable patient on the AB site to angioembolization. Additionally, in the in the text, we have the WAC injury scale. And like we mentioned before, these are a great reference for clinical use. They're rarely tested on the AB site, where you're expected to know what grade the injury is, just based on the description within the, the question stem. So, Jason, moving on, what do we do post splenectomy? How do we how do we manage these patients after they are recovered from their their injury?
0: Okay. Yeah. So after splenectomy or even after angioembolization, we will want to treat patients and, and vaccinate them for encapsulated bacteria. Those encapsulated bacteria being pneumococcus, meningococcus, or H. influenza. Ideally, we would do that vaccination 14 days after either the splenectomy or the angioembolization. In, real, you know, in, in reality, with, with trauma patients, generally, we'll want to make sure that they're, they're vaccinated before they leave the hospital.
1: Yeah. So, what are some of the complications after performing an open splenectomy?
0: Yeah. So, typically, I'll, I'll like to break these down into early and, and late complications. So, early in the hours to days after splenectomy, you can get bleeding, bleeding, and and also bleeding. Another thing to worry about would be uh, gastric perforation, and and this all has to do with the you know, the, the intimate relationship between the spleen and the short gastrics and that greater curvature of your stomach, which is the, the site of perforation and also the most common site of, of bleeding after a splenectomy. Now, late, we worry about things like a pancreatic injury that could result in a, a fluid collection there, or even a, a pancreatic fistula, though that's why we oftentimes like to leave drains in that area we're worried about a pancreatic injury and then finally you know down the road looking for uh, post splenectomy infections or opsy overwhelming post splenectomy infection which is uh, the uh, the reason why it's so important to get those patients uh, vaccinated
1: yeah and you know talking about the pancreas injury at fistula drainage is not necessary after an open splenectomy but as the mobilization of the spleen especially if you have trauma to the hil- hilum of the spleen you may have a pancreatic tail injury so if you notice you know, the pancreas is is even slightly injured in the operator, but it's always safer to leave drains. So Jason, what's the most common organism that causes the overwhelming post
0: infection? Yeah, that's uh, strep pneumo. Okay. how would that usually present? So usually it occurs, it's very rare, that's important to remember, but often it occurs many years after the splenectomy. And so... Patient will have you know, some early prodromal syndrome of fevers, chills, rigors, diarrhea, uh, myalgia, but uh, can very rapidly progress to DIC, multisystem organ failure, and possibly even and death. So it's something that we need to have a high index for suspicion for and to treat patients aggressively post splenectomy. Okay. So now moving on to liver injuries. So, you know, we know this is, we've all probably heard that liver injuries are the most common solid organ injury. So the initial management, John, how do, you, how do we typically approach liver injuries?
1: Yeah, I would say the majority of liver injuries can be managed without surgery. Very similar to any other solid organ injury. The patient should be in a moderate setting and the, the type of approach should be protocolized to include repeat hematocrit checks and abdominal exams. And similar to spleen, if you have blush on CT scan, especially on the initial CT scan, you need to consider angiol talk to your IR colleagues about that, and also consider a repeat CT scan if you have a high-grade injury to rule out a cedar aneurysm.
0: And then both for spleen and liver, that's usually done around 72 hours after injury. Okay, and I think I'll come back at you with what you came at me with with the spleen injury. Is The first thing we need to do is determine whether or not the patient is stable versus unstable. You know, obviously we have a solid organ injury, unstable patient. That patient belongs in, in the operating room and certainly not in the CT scanner or interventional radiology. So we need to clearly make that distinction first. Like the other things that we're talking about, there is a double AST injury scale that we'll reference to. So let's let's take a step back and say that, you know, we are in the OR with this unstable patient um, that has a liver injury. Can you kind of walk me through your, your stepwise approach to how you, you handle these?
1: Yeah, liver injuries can be quite difficult, and there's, you know, multiple test texts out there explaining the best approach to these injuries, but it's important to have, you know, great control of the room, have anesthesia buy-in for these. You always want to start with the least invasive, and in this case, for liver injuries, that would include, you know, liver packing to get hemorrhage control. If that doesn't work, especially if a patient's still bleeding, you got to consider doing a Pringle maneuver, so that includes occ- your portal venous and hepatic arteries. And then finally, if you're still having bleeding past that, now you have to be concerned with one of the worst injuries in trauma, which is a retroepatic IVC injury, and you want to move to total vascular isolation.
0: Okay, let's say that, you know, the liver's cracked open and you're getting a lot of bleeding from the the liver itself. What are some, how do you manage bleeding from liver parenchyma?
1: Yeah, this is not particularly important for the ab site specifically. So the same thing as, you know, getting hemorrhage control, there is a stepwise and kind of least to most invasive way of getting hemorrhage control. That includes just electrocautery to suture ligation to anatomic and non-atomic liver resections. Like once again, it's not going to be necessarily questions on the ab site of how you're going to deal with this. What is important to deal with for the ab site is when to consider Damage control surgery and just packing rapid transfer back to the ICU or to IR if you're having, you know, significant bleeding.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I think I could see yourself in that situation on the outside, you know, with the patient is coagulopathic, hypothermic, and acidotic. And the, the answer is, you know, damage control with temporary packing and, and get them to the ICU where they can get resuscitated and trying to stabilize them to, to fight to another day. Well, let's say we get our patient through, you know, their injury. What are the complications down the road, both immediate and early and late, that we need to worry about?
1: Yeah, I kind of generalize them. So the, the two big ones, you always need to consider bleeding anytime you take a patient to the operating room. So if you're having a patient with hypotension and lab data that supports, you know, down, downtrending hematocrits, so you need to concern of the liver is bleeding, again. That patient in belongs back in the operating room, even during resuscitation. The other things that happen later on are bile leak and hepatic necrosis that present a myriad of weight. So bioleak, you'll get constant fluid collections around the liver that re- may require percutaneous drainage. You may need to do an ERCP with placement of common bile duct stents to optimize flow through the, the duct system and also put them a place of patient on antibiotics. So patyp necrosis will often come and, and show as an abscess, and this also may need antibiotics, uh, percutaneous drainage, or a resection, unfortunately, if it's clinically significant. One of the more commonly tested things, uh, luckily not, and that happens a lot, is an arterial biliary fistula. This is a patient that will present with hematemesis, uh, and you'll have a CTA
0: showing a fistula, and they will need angiolamidization to deal with that. A lot of times what you'll see that is you'll see, uh, what they'll give you is that you see blood coming from the ampulla on upper endoscopy. And so if you see that, a patient with a history of liver trauma uh, think uh, arterial biliary fistula. And again, as as John says here, the, the answer is uh, angioembolization. So another high-yield specific injury to discuss are pelvic fractures. very common. So John, what can you tell us about pelvic fractures? Why are they so commonly tested and important?
1: Yeah, the high-yield things you want to know for the abcite for pelvic fractures is that bad pelvic fractures are no joke and they can quickly lead to deterioration the things that are tested are when do we place pelvic binders specifically we're not going to get into all the different types of pelvic fractures but if you have an open book fracture and you want to place a pelvic finder at the level of greater trochanters and this should be done in the pre hospital setting additionally 85 percent of pelvic hemorrhage is venous it's not arterial hemorrhage is a very low component of this if you do have a blush on cta and the patient is relatively stable you want to consider angioembolization once again. If the patient is unstable or IR is not available, which is something that you often get on your uh, oral board scenarios, you want to take the patient to the operating room for preperitoneal packing. Then they, after you pack the, uh, the preperitoneal space, they can go to IR after bleeding
0: persists. When would you um, think about using, a, or is there any role for, for using a ROBOA in pelvic fractures?
1: Yeah, I think riboa has a very, I'm not sure if this would be on the app site, but has a very a good consideration in pelvic fractures. Placing a zone three rubella, uh just above the uh, the bifurcation uh, can be a very good adjunct to control the bleeding in these patients. Okay,
0: great. Well, yeah, I think we, you hit the key points that what they're really getting out on the app site is to recognize that patients can bleed to death in their pelvis and that most of that hemorrhage is venous. So, you know pelvic uh, binder combined with either preperitoneal packing uh, as well as IR will will stop uh, most of that bleeding. I think the other thing to think about is the associated injuries that they'll want you to recognize. So pelvic fractures can you know think about the organs that live within the pelvis, the bladder, urethra, vagina, rectum, you need to have a very high index of suspicion of these. So let's say you may get somebody with a pelvic fracture that has gross hematuria. So what should we be thinking about in that scenario John yeah, you need to be concerned about a urethral or bladder injury in that instance, and you'd want to
1: get a retrograde urethrogram or cystogram, but we're going to talk about that in the next section under urologic trauma. All right, so Jason, renal injury, how do these, these patients typically present?
0: Well, uh, sometimes you'll get hematuria, either gross or microscopic, but just be aware that you know this is not always present, so don't be you know reassured if you don't see this. You can see well. Mechanism can kind of kind of clue you in as to a patient might have a renal injury. You may see flank ecchymosis, or the patient may you know, have flank pain.
1: Yeah, and how we evaluate them typically?
0: Generally, with the, we'll put them in the answering machine. So it's abdomen pelvis with IV both IV contrast, both immediate and and want to get those uh, delayed images.
1: Yeah, delayed images are are particularly useful. How I've seen this work is that. You get the IV contrast study if there's a concern for a renal injury based on the initial reads, and you just leave the patient on the table and then get delayed images while they're still there. Jason, how do we deal with renal locks that are identified on a CT scan?
0: So, if the patient's hemodynamically stable, hemodynamically stable, um, they can uh, generally be managed uh, non-invasively or, or non-operatively, and, and um, often just as supportive care.
1: Uh, CT imaging should be performed for grade four and five injuries for those developing signs of complications such as fever, increased pain, and distension. Just another thing to put on your as a question pops up as a patient's a few days after an injury like this, what should you do? CT imaging
0: would be the right thing. Now, what I think is more uh, interesting question is what do you do in in the OR with um, retroperitoneal hematomas? So let's say a zone two, you know retroperitoneal hematoma. or are in the OR. What are important considerations and what are some decision points?
1: Yeah, so most of these hematomas are you know are usually seen on your first evaluation of the abdomen. If the hematoma is not expanding, if it's not quite large and there's just, you know, some staining back there in the zone 2 area, you can usually leave it alone and do not violate the hematoma. Mainly because you're going to increase your body bleeding by opening that space. If it's expanding pulsatile or if it's uncontained and the retroperitoneum is, has been ruptured, it should be explored and the bleeding should be
0: managed okay i, I think an important caveat there is we're, we're i think in this instance we're talking about blunt uh, blunt mechanism now if a penetrating uh, mechanism of course the book answer is to explore that hematoma but uh, you know as you say for uh, a lot of these renal injuries specifically blunt can be uh, managed uh, non-operatively or without exploring that uh, stable hematoma staying within the urologic uh, system so uh, ureteral injuries. How do we how do we manage these, John?
1: Yeah, you see a, a handful of questions on ureteral injuries. So it's best to kind of break these up into the sections. And the the most commonly section that you'll see injury, especially in the general surgery website is the uh, distal ureteral injury. This can just mostly be re-implanted back into the bladder. And then the kind of the follow-up question is if it doesn't reach, what do you do? Jason, what do we do if that's the case? Psoas hitch. Yeah, psoas hitch.
0: And if- they often, I've, I've, I've seen this on the website, they, they won't often say psoas hitch, but there'll be a description of a psoas hitch. So make sure you're familiar with that. So yeah, again, that's a distal uretal or injury that you can't get to reach to reimplant into the bladder. Right. How do we deal with mid ureteral injuries? So, yeah, mid ureteral injuries, we want to, you know, spatulate our ends and perform a primary anastomosis over a double J ureteral stents with fine absorbable, important to use absorbable sutures there. And it goes without saying that you want to involve your, your urology colleagues, but that often will not be an option for you on the outside.
1: Yep. So, just quick distal ureter injury, reimplantation, mid ureteral injury. You want to do a primary anastomosis after reading all of the damaged tissue. All right, moving on to bladder injuries. So we know that 90% of bladder injuries are associated with pelvic fractures. The injury that is often laceration from fractured bone within the pelvis. How do these patients typically present?
0: Let's we'll Say you're in the trauma bay, Jason. Yeah, so kind of like we talked about with pelvic fractures, you, you certainly need to have a very high suspicion um, with, with bad pelvic fractures. Typically, you'll see the patients will present with hematuria, and that should be kind of your indicator. It's hematuria is more reliable with a bladder injury than it is with a a renal injury. So if I see hematuria with a pelvic fracture, uh, I know that that needs to be investigated further. And uh, typically, that's with a cystography, either retrograde cystography or a CT cystogram.
1: All right. How do we manage these people? Let's say, let's break it up into intraperitoneal and extraperitoneal injury. Okay. So you have a intraperitoneal injury to the
0: bladder. Yeah, this is important, and this is a question that you could very possibly get on the AB side. So, intraperitoneal bladder injury requires immediate operative repair. So that one's going to the OR. For extraperitoneal injuries, so if these are you know uncomplicated, and, and those can be managed with a Foley catheter drainage, and, and typically managed non-operatively. However, if they're complicated, and in an OR patient that's undergoing repair operative repair of that pelvic fracture you'll typically want to repair those bladder injuries to avoid you know leaking into that pelvic repair
1: yep so once again reiterate intraperitoneal bladder injury operative repair extraperitoneal typically you managed with uh, conservative management with a Foley catheter all right what's the general principle in managing and to surgically repairing these injuries
0: yeah, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. You know, what you should kind of remember is a two-layer watertight closure with absorbable suture. Again, it's very important in, in anywhere in the urinary tract to use an absorbable suture because permanent suture can be anitis forming, you know, bladder stones and those type of things. And then you're going to want to leave a catheter in place usually for 10 to 14 days, and we get a retrograde uh, cystography before uh, removing that so that Foley catheter.
1: Yeah, and that goes for both intraperitoneal and extraperitoneal injuries. Okay, moving on to urethral injuries. How do these usually present?
0: So these are you know patients that you'll see you know blood at the meatus. You get uh, scrotal or perineal ecchymosis. Often described high riding prostate, as well as inability to void or pass a Foley catheter, should all raise suspicion for a urethral injury. Uh, again, have a high index suspicion for those pelvic fractures. Yeah, what's the classic imaging study we ask for for urethral injuries? Yeah, so retrograde urethrogram is, is what you're going to want.
1: All right, and so we do once again kind of break the management up of urethral injuries into two different types. So for blunt posterior injuries, how do we manage them?
0: Yeah, uh, so blunt posterior injuries are that's a, the answer is a percutaneous suprapubic uh, tube. Yep, and anterior injuries, per, Uh penetrating injury will be an exploration and primary closure.
1: Good. And Moving on to extremity trauma. We're not going to dive really far into extremity trauma, but there are specific musculoskeletal injuries and in the associated nerve axial structures that you have to know for the ab site. So starting with the upper extremity adjacent, and I'll just list these out. If you have a patient that presented with a shoulder dislocation, what nerve is associated with that injury? Shoulder
0: dislocation, uh, axillary nerve injury. All right, humeral shaft fracture. Humeral shaft fracture, that's a radial nerve. All right, moving to the lower extremity, a hip dislocation. Now, with hip dislocation, you need to worry about your sciatic nerve. All right, a knee dislocation or a medial tibial plateau fracture. Okay, so knee dislocation, tibial plateau fractures, that's you worry about your popliteal artery or your common perineal nerve.
1: Moving into compartment syndrome. So we rarely measure pressures of the extremities clinically, but if we were to measure that pressure, what would be the threshold for diagnosing compartment
0: syndrome? Yeah, so technically, the compartment pressure with over 30 millimeters mercury of the, the diastolic pressure is considered consistent with compartment pressure. More recently, we've you know gone with the delta pressure, which is kind of equivalent to the cerebral perfusion pressure. It's the compartment version of the cerebral perfusion pressure. So that's what we more commonly use now. But really, I mean, compartment syndrome should be a clinical diagnosis, right?
1: And then what if you had being a clinical diagnosis? What type of injuries? Uh, high risk for compartment syndrome, specifically in trauma.
0: Yeah, so crush injuries, certainly a tibial plateau or tibial shaft fractures are very high risk, so you should have a very high risk of suspicion there. Ballistic fractures, you know, again, high energy tibial fractures, as well as uh, radius ulnar fractures uh, for the upper arm. So don't forget about the forearm as well.
1: All right, continuing with extremity trauma, there are some vascular principles that we need to address, but this will also be covered in the vascular chapter as well. For trauma specifically, what are some general operative principles that we need to follow?
0: So we can make some just broad generalizations when it comes to extremity vascular trauma. First, non-circumferential injuries may be patched with autogenous tissue or a prosthetic patch. In defects less than two centimeters where the two ends can reach each other without tension, primary repair after spatulating the edges for an end-to-end anastomosis can be performed. Longer gaps uh, between two vessel ends can be bridged using an interposition graph. The type of interposition graph that you choose is based upon the type of vessel injured. So for extremity arterial trauma, the general answer is reverse saphenous vein, However, more proximal injuries, like things above the knee, is generally accepted to, to use a synthetic graft in a non-contaminated field. For extremity venous injury, you generally primarily repair these if possible, but it's, it's generally, usually safe to, to, to ligate these if necessary.
1: Yeah, so one last thing to add to if you have an unstable patient with, you know, multi-traumatic injuries that, you know, shunting is definitely an option. these patients the one thing if you're looking at order i don't think this would be a, a question on the ab site but you have a patient with you know an extremity fracture and a vascular associated vascular injury do the shunt fix
0: the orthopedic injury first and then perform your repair and I'll just add one additional thing. So when you're, you're talking about combined arterial and venous injuries, you, you, you want to be less inclined to ligate that vein. So typically you'll want to repair the artery and vein if possible. And with any of these, always consider ischemia time and consider fasciotomies with any, any of these injuries as well. Okay, so now we're going to dive right into some special populations, and these are just high-yield pearls. This is by no means meant to be comprehensive. So let's, let's talk about pediatric trauma patients. What are some pearls, high-yield, for pediatric trauma patients when it comes to airway, John?
1: Yeah, something to know about pediatric patients is that the airway is narrower, shorter, and more anterior than adults. So when you're going to intubate these patients, it often requires the use of a straight laryngoscope blade with some upward angulation. Additionally, bradycardia is a common side effect of direct laryngoscopy in patients, and we want to treat this with atropine. We only want to innovate with cuff tubes. Only infants received uncuffed tubes. A good way to predict the size of the ET tube that's going to be needed for your patient is use the size of the patient's pinky nail bed with, or use the equation age divided by four plus four equals the ET tube size. No.
0: What about when it comes to resuscitation? I know this can be confusing because in, in, infants or, or children are different sizes and they vary gr- greatly, and this provides a lot of anxiety for people. Because is this somebody we want to give two and two to, or how do we decide how to resuscitate them?
1: Yeah, obviously the pediatric patients will need weight base resuscitation. So when we talk about boluses of either crystalloid or blood, we use 20 cc's a kilogram of bolus for crystallite and 10 cc's a kilogram bolus for blood products.
0: Great. Okay. So our, our next special patient population is pregnant trauma patients. And one thing we need to be aware of is that there are physiologic changes in pregnancy. So what are some of those, John?
1: Yeah. In regards to circulation, pregnant patients will have increased circulating blood volume that's accompanied by a physiologic anemia of pregnancy. Additionally, what you'd see on their lab data is leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, increased
0: fibrinogen, and increased clotting factors seven, eight, nine, and ten. Now, how about you know the placental vasculature There's in, in, the, in the, the fetus? How does that react to some physiologic changes in trauma in pregnant? Yeah, the
1: placental vasculature is extremely sensitive to catecholamines, and they can lead to abrupt decrease in maternal intravascular volume, which can result in profound increased resistance in the uterus, reducing fetal oxygenation despite normal maternal vital signs. So you have to have a high suspicion of fetal compromise during pregnant patients.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing to be aware of is the respiratory changes of pregnancy. So, you know, pregnant uh, the women will have increased tidal uh, volume, and increased O2 consumption. So apnea is, is very poorly tolerated, so they should, you know, get supplemental O2. And, you know, pregnant women are constantly in a, a state of compensated respiratory alkalosis, so that's certainly something to consider. As well.
1: Yeah, the increase of abdominal pressure and, and pregnancy, you know, displaces the diaphragm upwards, leading to a higher respiratory rate, that which can lead to a respiratory alkalosis.
0: Okay, so let's say we have a um, a pregnant uh, female that comes in uh, with uh, abdominal trauma. What do you want to do for this patient in the in the trauma bed? This
1: is, can be a complicated question because they might bring you a bunch of different things you want to do specifically for pregnant. But you remember, you have to approach every single prey or every trauma patient very similarly. So a, B, C, D, E's, Start with your primary survey and then move forward. But in general, you do want to place pregnant patients left side down to take pressure off the IVC and allow for appropriate blood return. You also need to have high vigilance of placental abruption and maternal fetal hemorrhage. Jason, what are ways that you might see this in a pr- trauma patient?
0: Yeah, so you know, for a placental abruption, you, you might see well, abdominal pain. You might feel uterine rigidity or tenderness. Patient may be having contractions uh, and or you know, vaginal bleeding you know but it's important to remember that abruption can present even in the absence of some of these things specifically vaginal bleeding with abruption you could see some you know lab abnormalities some decreased platelets decreased fibrinogen concentration
1: yeah all things that you would see in patients that are hemorrhaging but in these patients you may not see the hemorrhage
0: I think the other thing you mentioned was the maternal fetal hemorrhage so you know there's a Kleinhauer-Betke test, which measures the percentage of red cells containing fetal hemoglobin in maternal circulation. So this should be routinely performed in RH negative uh, patients and considered in RH positive patients who sustain blood trauma as a you know, positive test is a predictor for preterm labor and associated with uh, placental abruption. Ad- additionally, Rh negative mothers with uh, the concern for maternal fetal hemorrhage or have a positive kleinauer Betke test should receive Rhogam, which is you know Rh immunoglobulin to prevent alloimmunization.
1: Yeah, the last thing you the you know one of the major complications can be uterine rupture as well. This is a very injury can present with shock. And you can palpate fetal parts outside of the uterus. That could lead to abnormal fetal heart tracings, uh, uterine tenderness, and vaginal bleeding.
0: Now, something that comes up frequently is is fetal monitoring in these patients. So, you know, maybe you have uh, a—it happens all the time. We get a pregnant patient with a low mechanism of injury, and they'll want to admit for fetal monitoring. Who needs fetal monitoring?
1: Typically, the cutoff for uh, fetal heart monitoring is any patient that's at 24 or more weeks gestation, and they usually need for about two to six hours. There are some indications for more than 24 hours of observation, and those include high-risk mechanisms such as vehicle ejection, motorcycle crash, or death of another occupant in an MVC, abdominal bruising, or any other abdominal injury, injury risk severity score greater than 9, there's concern for a placental abruption or ultrasound, persistent abdominal or abdominal or uterine pain, a Maternal heart rate greater than one hundred and ten, regular contractions,
0: vaginal bleeding, and coagulopathy. Okay, great. Well, let's move into our last special patient population, and that's geriatric trauma patients. So, how is the you know how are geriatric patients different than young patients? The geriatric patients have a lower
1: physiological reserve than younger patients, which then places them you know at a pretty high risk category and then lower threshold for admission to an ICU or transfer to a designated trauma center. While there aren't a lot of specific questions for JA trauma patients on the AB sites, many institutions will have their own protocols in place for which patients belong in the ICU, who you can admit to the floor, and which patients, if they're at a lower level of care, need to be transferred to a designated trauma center.
0: Yeah, I think you might get into you know a geriatric patient with rib fractures, and they'll ask you where the patient should go. Just keep in mind that you know they have a low physiologic reserve and can decompensate those patients that need to be admitted to the ICU in general.
1: All right, moving on to our quick hits. Let's do it. All right, Jason, you ready? Born ready. What patients should not receive
0: succinylcholine? So it would be your burn patients, patient, crush injury patients, patients with muscular dystrophy, patients uh, who are hyperkalemic. Or those are the history of a significant spinal cord trauma. All
1: right. What are the earliest signs of hemorrhagic shock?
0: Tachycardia and a narrowed pulse pressure. What
1: if you have a patient in the trauma
0: bay with
1: hypotension with paradoxical bradycardia? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, trauma patient,
0: bradycardic, hypotensive, I'm worried about neurogenic shock. All right. What's the most common mechanism of urethral injury? Uh, Iatrogenic, actually, through uh, uh, ureteroscopy or during even hysterectomy or colectomy.
1: Bladder injury is most commonly associated with what injury?
0: Pelvic fracture 90% of the time.
1: What should you always consider for lower extremity vascular injury, especially after prolonged ischemia?
0: Yeah. Fasciotomies
1: to prevent compartment syndrome. Yeah. You're pretty much guaranteed a question on that. Initial management of open book pelvic fracture.
0: So you want to emergent reduction with a binder and or traction in order to tamponade that venous bleeding from those sheared blood vessels. Yeah, we want to close the space and restore normal
1: anatomy. All right, you see bubbles in coronary vessels during resuscitative thoracotomy.
0: Yeah, that's usually due to an air embolism and typically from a a pulmonary injury. All right. What do you have to be concerned about in a patient with an MVC with
1: a lumbar chance fracture and a seatbelt sign?
0: Okay. Well, I'll be worried about duodenal injury, pancreatic injury, or a holobiscus injury.
1: With a, What's the classic scenario of a kid with a handlebar blow to the abdomen?
0: Uh, duodenal injury, specifically a duodenal hematoma.
1: Yep. And always be worried about pancreatic trauma there too. All right. Initial treatment of a hemodynamically stable uh, duodenal hematoma. Okay.
0: Hemonymically stable hematoma, duodenum observation, NG tube, well, NG tube decompression if they develop a gastric outlet obstruction.
1: All right. You have a patient with a left thoracoabdominal stab
0: injury with negative imaging and normal exam. What do you do? Well, thoracoabdominal stab injuries would be highly suspicious for a diaphragm injury, which is not well seen on imaging. So I would want to do a laparoscopy to evaluate for a diaphragm injury.
1: All right. You got a patient who comes into the trauma bay, call it a trauma because they're found down. They're known to be oliguric and a creatinine of 3.5. What are you concerned about? Yeah.
0: I'd be concerned about
1: rhabdomyolysis. All right. You have a history of tracheostomy patient and the nurse reports 10 cc's of bright red blood from the tracheostomy site.
0: Yeah. So I'd be worried that that's my sentinel bleed for a developing tracheoanominate fistula. All right, next is a severe
1: TBI patient with a sodium of 155 and uh, five liters up in resuscitation.
0: Okay, so with a TBI patient and and those labs and that urine output, I'd be worried about uh, diabetes insipidus. All right, the treatment? Uh, DDAVP.
1: Okay, you got a trauma patient that's paralyzed from the head down with no cremasteric reflex. So that's uh, spinal shock. All right, stab wound to the abdomen, a benign exam, a
0: wrist omentum. Evisceration is going to the OR for a laparotomy. Yeah.
1: You could consider laparoscopy, but for the lab site, you know, just perform a laparotomy.
0: Liver bleeding that's
1: unchanged after
0: a priggle maneuver. Yeah. So we talked about this. So that, that would make me concerned for a hepatic vein or a, a retrohepatic uh, vena cava injury. All right.
1: And the procedure you do to uh, secure all blood flow to the liver.
0: Yeah, it's a total vascular isolation of the liver.
1: All right. Yeah, chest x-ray that shows an apical cap. What should you be worried about?
0: Um, apical cap. I'm worried about uh, a blunt injury to the thoracic aorta. All right. You have major
1: arterial bleeding, posterior, and a neck expiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, most likely
0: a vertebral artery injury. All right. Stab wound to the flank. So I'd be worried about the injury to my retro or uh, retroperitoneal organs, so kidney, colon injury. So I'd want to evaluate that with a uh, triple contrast to CT.
1: Yeah. Remember, you're not going to see these types of injuries present on a, a traditional abdominal uh, imaging and trauma. And that's why you may need to follow up with a triple contrast CT. Trauma patient with an elevated LY30 on TEG. LY30, that patient needs TXA. All right. The gateway structure to the carotid bifurcation.
0: The uh, common facial pain.
1: All right. Gateway structure to the great vessels during immediate
0: sternotomy. Plus, your innominate vein, and hopefully, you didn't come through it with your sternal saw.
1: Yeah. Can we ligate that? You can. Okay. Hematemesis two weeks after MVC with a grade four liver laceration.
0: So, I'd be worried about hemobilia from an arterial bilious fistula. And how do we treat that? So, angioembolization.
1: Okay. We have a patient with an open pelvic fracture with a
0: complex perineal wound. Yeah, so I'd want to divert that patient, so diverting colostomy.
1: Okay. We have a gunshot wound to the pelvis with a rectal wall hematoma seen on rigid proctoscopy.
0: Yeah, so that, that one's kind of tough, but with a rectal wall hematoma, even though I don't see an injury, I'm going to divert that patient with a diverting colostomy.
1: Okay, good. All right, well, that rounds out the second portion of our trauma absite review. Trauma is a significant portion of the absite every single year, so I highly recommend reviewing this multiple times
0: as well as doing a bunch of questions and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife in Medtronic, dominate the app